BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, what we're learning about long-haul COVID. Tens of thousands of people who've contracted COVID-19 report they continue to experience chronic coughing, fatigue, or cognitive issues. It's unclear why or how best to treat this. And some people with long COVID say they've had a hard time getting doctors to take their illnesses seriously. But now many are speaking out and organizing for more research, better medical treatment, and support. We talk with patients and physicians right after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. People with what's known as long COVID, or our so-called COVID long haulers, continue to feel symptoms of the virus months after the initial or acute phase has passed. And the number of people who say they're experiencing this continues to grow. I'm joined now by Paige Morrissey, who was diagnosed with COVID in early December of last year. She's 24, lives in San Francisco, and says it's hard to remember what it feels like to be healthy. Paige Morrissey, thanks so much for coming on Forum to share your experience. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Really appreciate it. You were diagnosed with COVID now nearly six months ago. Can you tell us what your symptoms were when you first had the infection? Yeah, of course. So I'll I'll give you my timeline. Um, so yeah, tested positive for COVID on December 5th. Um, my initial symptoms were just some chest tightness, uh, GI upset, and insomnia. Um And then after the two weeks was up and my quarantine was over, I just wasn't really feeling any better. Um, I had dropped 20 pounds in two weeks. Um, My hair was coming out in clumps and I actually felt I was just getting worse. Like my chest pains were getting worse and I was starting to get shortness of breath. Um, So I talked to my primary care doctor and she advised me to, you know, keep getting out, exercise every day to keep my anxiety down and my strength up. Um, which I'm learning now is maybe not the best advice. Um, so why, I, why not? Um, just from what I've learned, it's, it's important for lots of folks to just like really rest in the beginning if they have the privilege to rest, you know, um, rather than pushing your body too soon. Um, but that just, that's in my experience, what I've learned. Um, yeah. So, and so, did you yeah. feel like she understood what you were going through? Um, I'd say she was just as perplexed as I was at the time. Mm. Um, 
like we were both kind of didn't have answers and um yeah yeah so after that I um because I just wasn't feeling better I ended up going to the ER a couple times uh they did kind of the routine scan like chest x-ray CT checked my blood oxygen and everything was normal so you know they I was sent home um and then by the end of the month my heart rate was really high and just spiking pretty dramatically, um, which ended up, I ended up being diagnosed later with POTS, which is a nervous system disorder. Um, and then that same doctor, you know, told me that the heart rate was normal um, to be that high. And my psychiatrist was just telling me it was my anxiety, which often is a common theme with long haulers that our, our COVID symptoms are kind of misconstrued to be like mostly psychiatric. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then around that same time, I remember waking up one day and just like uh, looking at my mom and her face just looked and like felt like really unfamiliar to me. Like she was a stranger to me. Um, And I like couldn't recognize myself in the mirror either. And I was also just increasingly like becoming more forgetful. Like my short-term memory was really faltering. Um, And then of course the brain fog that we always hear about, um, which for long haul folks, I I found like just can range from being like you're kind of what's happening right now you're you're kind of forgetful um um or, or you have like sometimes dementia like symptoms where I've talked to folks who feel like who felt like they were going to forget their kids um wow. so yeah it's 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 pretty serious so um and then I then reached out to my same doctor and and my psychiatrist and I told them you know some things like percolating in my brain. I don't know what's going on. And, and they told me that, you know, COVID can't really enter the brain, which, you know, we now know is, is not true. Um, so totally dismissed. And then they gave me um, antipsychotic medication, like for schizophrenia, um, which made my symptoms much worse. Um, oh, no. Yeah. So, but the, then it kind of took a turn. So two months later, um, my dear, dear friend, Maddie suggested that I join um, this online support group called Body Politic, um, which I'm sure you've heard about, which is, you know, to this day has been the most invaluable resource. They have like a Zoom call with like long haulers, like all across the world. Um, and it's been so helpful, like not just for learning about like the pathology of COVID, but like emotional support, being in community with other long haulers, sharing resources, seeing what treatments have worked for folks, you know, because there are common threads between our symptoms, but you know, the manifestations vary so greatly. So it has to be so individualized to each person, the kinds of treatment we get. So yeah, I'm as, and as of now, I'm like almost six months out. Um, I'm, I'm looking for like different kinds of therapies outside of Western medicine. Um, Cause I like, yeah, we've kind of spoke about like, felt like wasn't really like able to be helped by Western doctors. Um, so looking into like functional medicine, um, traditional Chinese medicine with, you know, it's years and years of wisdom and also um, something called hyperbaric oxygen treatment um, to target like, like healing at the root, at the cells, you know, because, you know, COVID really damages so deeply, like so thoroughly. And are those, um, are those treatments making you feel better? Are they helping you? Yeah. So um, I'm feeling hopeful because I've, found some relief with them and but the tragic thing is like most of them aren't covered by insurance you know so um 
I'm, I'm grateful, but it's like, this is the only thing I found that's helped besides getting the vaccine. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the vac- it sounds like the vaccine helped you feel a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know long haulers have totally different responses to the vaccine, but I felt like, um, you know, it helped bring my heart rate down. It kind of helped my brain come back online. Um, but what didn't definitely didn't bring me back to baseline, like you mentioned before in the intro, like, yeah, I can't remember what it was like, how I felt pre-COVID. Um, yeah. So I just, through this whole experience, I've really found that I feel like, you know, our healthcare system is for the most part, like just in my experience, like I feel like focus on medicating and like symptom management and not like helping people like find the root cause or like help them or take care of them over the long term. And I've just found, of course, that like insurance is such a barrier to care. Um, yeah. And like I mentioned with the treatments, I've been, you know, privileged enough to find that like we have to pay out of pocket, you know? So um, yeah, that's where we're at now. You have to pay out of pocket at the same time that it sounds like it's been difficult to work. I, I can imagine with the symptoms that you're describing. Yeah. And I mean, just to put my experience in context, like I've been very privileged in this, in the course of this illness, like in terms of like having a family that's a, that a support system around me and being able to take time off of work. Like I was working at, you know, Trader Joe's, like I had to, I took that two week COVID pay, but then just took a, a leave um, for a couple of months. And like so many people are not able to do that, you know? So um, yeah, it's, it's been difficult to get back into work. Um, and of course this virus just like, yeah, it, it makes like, I, you feel, what's the word? My brain fog, like, like you just kind of feel like a shell of who you once were, like the things that you used to love and um, the people you used to feel close to. And if it just, you feel disconnected, like in so many ways. Um, but yeah, yeah. We're talking with Paige Morrissey, a long haul COVID-19 patient, a survivor of COVID. And uh, I, I want to actually bring Dr. Aruna Subramanian into this conversation, infectious disease specialist at Stanford University. Aruna Subramanian, thanks for joining us. Sure, happy to be here. Listening to Paige talk about her experience and really sharing so poignantly all the ups and downs, I really wonder what we know about the condition of long-haul COVID at this point. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there's still so many unknowns as Paige has gone through. Um, We're still learning so much uh, about long-haul COVID. You know, COVID-19 is a new disease. We've only known about it for a little over a year. So um, learning about the long-term effects of it is, is, you know, something that is under study in, in great depth. But things that we know so far are sort of overall numbers that we're gathering of people who are affected. Uh, we know from registries or sort of long-term surveys of people, there's a, an, a mobile app that was launched in the UK, which uh, people filled out surveys on a daily basis. And about one in 10, about 10% have symptoms after four weeks still. Mm. One in 20, 5% have symptoms at eight weeks. And one in 50, still have symptoms at 12 weeks. So this, it sounds like, oh, small numbers, but when you have millions of people being infected, 
these are large numbers worldwide that we're seeing, and it's going to have a big impact. So that, that's the first thing we're learning in terms of numbers. And Paige pointed out it's, it's really an umbrella term. It seems to be a term for different categories of illness that are all sort of lumped together in this long COVID. And they sort of fit into different categories. Fatigue is pretty common for all of them. But many people have neurologic symptoms with the brain fog, headache, tinnitus, ringing in the ear, that is, or hearing loss. And they can have those types of symptoms for quite some time. And some people have more pulmonary symptoms, so trouble breathing, cough, and other uh, difficulty with doing exercise. That can be related to how severe the initial illness was, but not always. Even people with mild disease can have that. And then there are folks with cardiac type, type side effects uh, long-term with chest pains. And then as Paige said, POTS or postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, where with minimal activity, you get really fast heart rates. And then people are also having GI symptoms long-term. So all of these are, you know, maybe interrelated, but people do fall into different categories. Some are related to the initial severity and some are not. And we're learning how much is more of a direct effect related to people being in the ICU. Some of the lung conditions could be that way, but a lot of these may be indirect effects and maybe either autoimmune or other inflammation that we're seeing uh, that's triggered by the COVID. And, and uh, that's why we're seeing them more long-term and it's more of an inflammatory effect that's going on long-term. We're talking with Dr. Aruna Subramanian, an infectious disease specialist at Stanford University, and Paige Morrissey, a long-haul COVID-19 survivor. And we're talking about people who experience long-haul COVID, the challenges they face. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join us. If you have an experience with long-haul COVID or someone you know does, tell us your experience at 866-733-6786. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about people with long-haul COVID this hour who find they can't shake symptoms months after infection or even see them intensify. We're joined by Paige Morrissey, who has long-haul COVID, and Dr. Aruna Subramanian, an infectious disease specialist at Stanford. And you, our listeners, are with us. What questions do you have about the long-term impact of COVID-19? Have you or someone you know experienced long-haul COVID or ongoing symptoms of COVID-19? What would you like to share about your experience? Give us a call, 866 733 6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And Dr. Subramani, and just before the break, you were talking about this constellation of symptoms. Uh, how do you begin to treat them? What do you do? Right. 
you know, we're, as I said, we're still doing research on this. The NIH has put out a large call for centers to join with cohorts of patients to really study them long-term. We started studying patients last June, July, when we realized people are starting to have these long-term symptoms. And we've been following them now for almost a year, some of them. And it really does have to be individualized. I think the first thing, as Paige pointed out, is to, to really believe them and, and under, try to listen really to the symptoms that they're bringing up because we are learning about this as we go. So the first thing is to really validate that what they're going through is real and, and not just in their head. Um, so that that's the first thing. And then the second thing, as she mentioned, is to help them pace themselves because if it's true, sometimes people recommend, oh, just do exercise and get over it. And that's really not... Um, helpful to some people in that they have to be very slow in their recovery and really go about it in in a systematic way. Uh, There are rehab centers that are starting up COVID-specific rehab centers across the country, and they are proceeding in a very slow way. In fact, there's a study uh, from the CDC comparing it to rehabilitation after cancer chemotherapy. So it has to be a very slow methodical process and and people are using nutrition and and other ways to build their bodies up and alternative medicines as as Paige mentioned but really trying to look at it um, trying to figure out what is the immunologic basis to this to help us decide on what types of medications to to prescribe because we have to understand what is the underlying immunology what is being triggered in creating these neuroinflammatory processes and then sort of um, really target the right thing right now. Yes. Symptomatically based on their symptoms. It, it just sounds like you would need to involve a lot of different disciplines based on what you and Paige describe. That's true. So we, we do have neurologists we're working with and they are, some of them are experts in POTS um, syndrome, the postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, where they're, where people's hearts are, uh, you know, racing, and they have different medicines that they give. There are people who um, are ex- experts in pulmonary medicine, and some people have more reactive airways disease, you find, and so they respond to uh, inhalers and other sort of treatments for asthma, some people have more interstitial lung disease, and so that requires a different type of treatment. So yes, we do um, involve a lot of different disciplines. And then, of course, not to um, diminish the role of mental health providers, you know, there is a lot of anxiety and depression in this. It, it's not the entire answer, but it really, um, um, psychiatrists play an important role as well. In, in to, to help give support to people with long Yeah. Paige Morrissey, if you had to say the one thing that you would recommend doctors do when a patient shows up um, concerned that they might have long-haul COVID, what, what advice would you give? Oh, wow. It's a thoughtful question. Um, obviously, the listening piece is important. Um, but it has, it definitely has to be so much more than that. Like we need, you know, partners in our care as like we 
you know, move forward with an illness or with a virus that's new. Um, but like kind of how I mentioned before, like not just medicating and having to be, you know, treating symptoms for the rest of our lives, but really getting to the root cause um, and, and really looking at like each patient's like, like the doctor mentioned, like immune profile and really catering it specifically to each individual. Um, and really, like I mentioned, like healing at the cellular level. Um, mm -hmm. So like we can, so we can have a future, you know, like you and, and someone you can work with in the long term. Um, I do feel like with our current healthcare system, it's really difficult to find care that is specialized, long-term, accessible quality. Um, so in my opinion, it would require a different kind of system. Um, mm -hmm. But um, I, I'm sure that, you know, a lot of folks may also feel that way, but um, yeah. just collaborators in care, you know. Well, your so. point about so that we can have a future. Ben writes, I tested positive in early 2021, but it wasn't until late March and early April that my symptoms became alarming. I was in decent shape, but had heart palpitations, trouble breathing and trouble thinking clearly months after testing positive. The vaccine also helped me tremendously, but it's been over a month and I still feel some of the symptoms and I'm worried they will be permanent. Let me go to caller Carol in Richmond. Hi, Carol. Thanks for calling. Hello. Thank you. Um, I'm I'm was diagnosed with COVID in um, March of 2020, and I, you know, over a year later, I still have lingering symptoms, including brain fog and fatigue, and uh, thoracic outlet syndrome, nervous system degeneration, um, and it's really unmanageable. I've been out of work for six months on leave, and um, I really am looking for solutions. Um, I've had the experiences that uh, others have had with, you know, trying to convince the, the medical system to kind of recognize my condition and, and um, provide me with solutions. But um, it's uh, it's almost like just watching your your life disappear, like the woman said earlier. The kind of shell of who you were before is is it's really just so debilitating. Well, Carol, I, I, yeah. Did you have a question as well? But I thank you for sharing that experience. Was there something you wanted to add there? Um, I just wanted to really find out um, solutions, treatments that are, are available, mm. uh, you know, kind of the inflammatory, you know, systemic inflammatory, chronic inflammatory condition that it causes and the, the nervous system degeneration is is so debilitating. It makes you ah. feel like you're aging at a rapid rate. And so I'm just very interested to hear what, you know, research is, is happening or if there are solutions to this issue. Thank well, you. Car yeah, well, Carol, thank you. And Dr. Subramanian, do you have any thoughts on Carol's question about no. the inflammatory issues she's describing, the nervous system issues? Right. Yeah. I mean, you hear all of these heartbreaking stories and, and it's really People have been suffering for um, up to a year now, and it's so hard to see. But we are doing various studies, as I said, on the on the inflammatory causes of this, and also looking at the neurologic components of this. I'm working with a neuroscientist, Dr. Leanne Williams, who who actually does neurocognitive testing, and she's really finding objective findings of people's attention their memory, their overall executive function, their recall, everything is 
is much lower than you would expect in age-matched controlled peers. And she's finding damage or, or dysfunction in the, the neural circuits that uh, uh, by MRI and different types of testing that she's doing. So it's, it, we, are, we are looking into trying to figure out what is the, the underlying mechanism and where can we intervene um, in terms of solutions right now, we don't have them yet, but we're working on it. We're looking at things that help with chronic fatigue syndrome. I also work in the myalgic encephalitis chronic fatigue clinic. And there are different types of medicines we use there to try to help reduce the neuroinflammatory response. We're wondering whether that would be helpful in this case. That That is another area of, of great study where we don't have too many answers yet. But Is there, Dr. Subramanian, like a specific mm-hmm. online resource that you direct people to for more information? Um, as that not really the, devel- developed yet? Yeah, yeah, it's not completely developed. There are different CDC calls and there are different, really patient groups have come together to, to uh, provide resources. I, I think more than physicians at this point, there are a lot of patient groups that that um, provide a lot of support and research uh, functionality. Um, mm. That maybe Paige would have um, those links. That that yeah. Did. Well, she mentioned body politic for sure mm-hmm. has been really helpful to you, right, Paige? Yeah, they've been absolutely huge, and I know they're doing and organizing patient-led research. Um, there's so many different kinds of channels, like data nerds channels, um, just other ways that people can heal um, from COVID. But I'd say the Zoom call is like where I've been able to learn the most and share the most resources. But yeah, absolutely body politic. The Zoom call meaning uh, where people also get together to talk about what they're going through and sharing what's working for them. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, well, you sorry, go ahead. Just like a what? Just like a virtual, like all day long Zoom call. And you can hop on at any time. So, well, let me go now to Eric Black, who is joining us. Eric Black lives in Santa Cruz, Cruz Hills. And Eric, I know you were on the program last year. You were infected more than a year ago at the beginning of March. Can you give us a sense of what you found helpful? Because I understand that uh, the vaccine has actually been surprisingly helpful to you. Yes, uh, actually, um, uh, I, I was on forum last August and for more than a year, I have been affected by the, the long-haul symptoms, most significantly the brain fog uh, and lack of memory. Uh, uh, so I have to write down things that I've been doing so that I will remember that I did it hmm. the next day. Um, and it has greatly improved now. Uh but for the last year, I've had the, the brain fog and lack of memory. Uh, people who know me thought that I was a completely different person. Uh, uh, the uh, tachycardia, high blood, or I'm sorry, high uh, uh, heartbeat rate. Uh, I would go from just sitting on the couch. I would go from a normal 60 beats a minute to 220 or more beats per minute. And then five minutes later, back down. Feels wow. like a 
feels like a an egg beater in your chest. Um, my blood pressure would go from a very low rate to very high blood pressure and then back down. Um, as has been mentioned, fatigue, tinnitus, uh, ringing in the ears, uh, GI tract uh, effects, um, um, diarrhea, sorry to say that, and uh, a lack of appetite, but also uh, uh, hot flashes uh, alternating between uh, hot flashes and cold chills as if my body's thermostat is broken. And uh, that has been going on for much of the past year since I was, uh, since I first uh, got COVID in the end of April, beginning of May last year. Oh, end of April, beginning of May. I, I know that you've expressed concern that you might never improve but now you're relieved to see that after the vaccine, you feel quite a bit of improvement. But I wonder how you dealt with that concern for so long. I can imagine it must take quite a toll. Well, as, as Paige mentioned, the uh, online Zoom meetings with people who share these kinds of uh, uh, these kinds of uh, symptoms and concerns really does help. Um, for any kind of uh, situation that you're going through, talking to other people who have the same situation really does help. And especially since I think you described your doctor as like laughing off your symptoms initially as well. Well, that, that's, that's the other thing is, is my doctor still to this day, my doctor, my primary care physician does not believe that there is such a thing as long haul COVID. Um, Were you able other, to be... Other medical people are coming around to, uh, to accepting that this it really is a thing. Were you able to be tested at the time that you got it since it was earlier in the pandemic? Were you able to be tested easily? No, actually, at, at that time, the, the tests were being rationed out because they were in short supply. Right. So by the time I got tested, I was no longer positive. And how did that complicate your ability to connect it to COVID-19? That might have been part of why my doctor thought that I was never sick. Well, Eric, I'm so glad to hear that, you know, group conversations have been so helpful. Before I let you go, is there anything else you want to say about what's really helped you? Well, uh, yeah, uh, getting the vaccine actually did uh, help my symptoms. And uh, it was very shortly after I got my uh, vaccine that uh, I experienced rapid improvement. So please do get vaccinated. Well, Please Eric, do. yeah, I really appreciate you coming on. I'm glad you've experienced rapid improvement. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me back. Eric Black, a 65-year-old COVID-19 survivor. Appreciate having you back on. Let me see if I can bring Ted from Orange County into the call. Hi, Ted. Hello. Hi. What would you like to say, Ted? Well, I just have a comment. You know, I, I got a question to the doctor. 
And, uh, you know, I had COVID. Uh, my comment was I had COVID. I was intubated for two, almost two months and oh, wow. spent two, two months in the hospital. I coded a couple of times. Um, so it was, I guess it was, a, you know, a bad COVID case. Um, but my long-term, I, I've been pretty much diagnosed that you're a long hauler. I, I do have uh, joint pains, which I never had at, at times, uh, even though I'm not a young man, I'm 60, almost 64, and, but I've been physical my whole life. So there, I'm used to muscle, muscle strains and the like. But I've been getting, you know, after COVID, post-COVID, uh, I get joint pains in, in areas where I didn't ever have anything, like hips and knees and, you know, elbows and shoulders. I never had problems before. So I my question was maybe to the doctor, is this a, a, a you know, a symptom that is going to go away for the, to the best of our knowledge, or is this just something that COVID, you know, uh, causes and i heard the mm. inflammation component right. that you were alluding to and i was wondering is this something that will be dealt with um on a chemical level or you know drug yes. level so the joint pain you have a question about well I, I we're coming up on a break and i definitely want to get you an answer um so stay with us and i also just want to say my goodness i'm glad you're alive ted you mean you describe being intubated and coded a couple of times that's that's incredible so thank you for calling stay on the line we're list, you're we're talking about long haul covid survivors you're listening to forum i'm mina kim Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about people who experience long-haul COVID-19, the challenges they face, how to help. We're joined by Paige Morrissey, a long-haul COVID-19 patient. And we just heard earlier from Eric Black, a COVID-19 survivor. Also with us, Dr. Aruna Subramanian, an infectious disease specialist at Stanford. You can call us at 866-733-6786 if you have questions or comments. Email us, forum at kqed.org or post comments at KQED Forum on Twitter or Facebook. Dr. Subramanian, we have Ted on the line from Orange County who survived being on a ventilator and coding as well, and now he says he experiences significant joint pain. Wondering if you have any insights as to, I guess, Ted was asking, you know, can he expect that to go away? Yeah, that's a great question. We we do see syndromes after people are in the ICU. So there's post-ICU syndrome or after they've been intubated for several months, people can have many, many symptoms um, that like joint pains and, and other pulmonary also um, long-term effects. So uh, it's hard to know how much of this is from COVID itself or from being debilitated in the ICU. There is the concern that COVID causes autoantibodies. So antibodies that your body produces against itself and can can sort of worsen autoimmune conditions. And various autoimmune conditions cause joint pains and swelling. So it's something that are being is being followed by rheumatologists all over the country, whether people are going to start having more cases of autoimmune joint problems down the road. And we don't really know that yet. These types of conditions are often treated with 
immune modulating drugs, anti-inflammatories and things that reduce the immune system. So it's really something that Ted should get looked into, um, maybe see a rheumatologist if something's been triggered. Um, well, Ted, thank you so much for the question and for calling in. And right now, I want to invite into the conversation Dr. Kavita Patel, a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution, a primary care physician in Washington, D.C. Dr. Patel, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Mina. I wanted to bring you on because I know one of the things that you're trying to do is is work on policy solutions and other ways to be able to get help for long COVID patients, one of them being that you'd like to see a registry. First, can you explain that what that is and what it would do? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a registry is really just a kind of a simple way of standardizing data about COVID, both in the long-term setting, as well as just the experience outside of the healthcare settings, but to kind of standardize the way that data around COVID patients are collected to benefit from any knowledge or learnings and also to look for patterns. And we have registries on many things. A great example of one that many might be familiar with is cancer. Most states have a cancer registry where different types of cancers and treatments as well as opportunities for clinical trials are all collected. These are not usually identifiable patient information. So it doesn't have Kavita Patel with my age and date of birth and other details, but it says that it's a female of a certain age, kind of what my diagnosis was, what my treatments might be. And that's really how in this kind of very global age, we learn from not just what patients' experiences are, but we can also meaningfully do what we call health services research, mean to understand if there are impacts that interventions have. So for example, I've been listening to the robust conversation. I have a number of patients of mine that are in the same boat. Is this joint pain related? Was it different? By having a registry that kind of looks and takes patients and understands what's happening to them over their journey, we can better understand this truly novel virus along with a truly novel disease. This mm. is a chronic disease that we've never had before. One of the things that I know you'd like to see is a registry that would automatically pull in patient data. As you're saying, data are sorely needed because that will possibly be, probably be what really gives you some substantive um, ideas about how to treat this and so on. Wonder why that is, because I can imagine people having privacy concerns, people who have distrust of the medical system, wanting their information in there, even if it's anonymous. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I'm I'm probably one of my original jobs was to work on um, HIPAA, kind of the Patient Protection Privacy Act that we have. And so I take that very seriously. And I think that what we've seen so far are state-led efforts to have patients and providers kind of, you know, opt in. So to your point, Mina, kind of like you'd have to say actively, yes, I would contribute my scientific information, clinical information to this registry at state of Massachusetts, for example. And what I'm kind of trying to, to say that for the purposes of equity, as well as truly getting what I would say is a representative sample of COVID patients, we should have an opt out mechanism, but also put in pretty critical protections for privacy. And we can take data out of electronic health records, which is where a lot of our data sits that we don't use. And we can protect people's what we call personal health information that knows that it's this person with this piece of health experiences. 
but be able to report on kind of the actual health outcomes and, and individual kind of experiences. So it is possible to protect privacy. We do need to have that be something that patients can opt out of because like many things mean on the internet or when you go to a store, you opt out of certain things. But this is a situation where I'm worried that the same disparities we saw in diagnosing and treating COVID could only reproduce themselves in understanding what we call kind of, you know, long COVID or chronic COVID. You mean the disparities in terms of, for example, Race, Black and Latino communities, I, yes, being hit harder? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I see it. I practice in a primarily almost exclusive Latinx community, and we're we're seeing incredible amounts of diabetes after COVID. And, and many of us are trying to work with some of the larger kind of centers at, at academic universities, et cetera, to try to understand this. But my patients are truly not going to have the kind of benefits of being at a center that might have one of these like kind of data and science programs, but I want my patients to benefit by also learning from patients like them. And so I think that the ability to have standard, systematic, I would argue a national registry makes a lot of sense considering what our country has sacrificed over the last 16 months. It's so interesting. Paige was saying earlier that in some ways what this whole experience has taught her is that we almost need a new system. When I hear people talking about how they felt that their experiences were not listened to or believed, I think about communities of color who've long reported this mistreatment pre-COVID, like as a condition of our healthcare system. And I worry that if it's already disproportionately affecting Black and Latino Americans, for example, that people won't get the help they need. Do you have any thoughts, Dr. Patel, on how right now the federal government and the CDC is trying to address this as they create guidance for healthcare providers for identifying long COVID? What is really needed? Are, Are we really doing what fundamentally needs to be done or just sort of at the surface at this point? Yeah, I think, look, I think that um, one of the most critical investments the Biden administration could have made was supporting kind of NIH grants and kind of NIH, I'll call them centers of excellence really around the country, which are literally getting stood up as we're speaking uh, to try to have trained clinicians, interdisciplinary, people like Dr. Srivamanian and myself and, you know, people of different specialties working together. What I've seen though, is that those do a really great job for a very select population, people who are kind of in those systems or who have the benefit of doctors referring into those systems. And Mina, I think you're 100% correct that if we don't go beyond that very, I'll say traditional center of excellence approach, we are gonna just reproduce the very same disparities that I've been seeing over decades of my life now. So I think that what we need now, and I've already seen some federal as well state legislative action that's kind of pushing, not just this issue of registries, but really, how are we meaningfully going to ensure that people with long-term COVID continue to get health insurance access? People do not have um, you know, their jobs taken away. People have disability rights. And so I do think, Mina, we will need to peel back these very complicated onion layers. And that is something the CDC knows, everybody knows it, but it's just never been something they've had to plan for before. And there's no playbook for how to do this. So that's why you're going to probably see a little bit of a quilt of approaches. I hope we don't let it just be at state level. This is something that I feel like all Americans would benefit from. And there's no reason that if you're in the state of Massachusetts, you have access to it. But if you're in the state of Texas, you don't. 
Well, Danielle writes, I had COVID in September of 2020. I'm only 30 and wasn't hospitalized. Almost nine months later, I'm struggling with 50 symptoms and my hours at work had to be cut due to exertion, making my symptoms worse. My symptoms are delirium, brain fog, shortness of breath, severe nerve and muscle pain, phantom smells, trouble working, insomnia and chest pain. Doctors have laughed me off as all tests come back normal. It has affected my sleep and mental health. I feel helpless. I need help. I urge everybody to get vaccinated. This virus is no joke. Paige Morrissey, are you hearing from people in your calls about whether or not they're still being asked to show tests to be able to, say, get treatment for long-haul COVID? Or, for example, I know that there are clinics that are popping up um, to try to treat specifically long-haul COVID symptoms, but they are requiring tests. Are you hearing anything about that? Yeah, I don't feel super qualified to speak on this, only can share anecdotally what I've heard. Um, but yeah, there've, there have been a myriad of folks who have been declined treatment because they didn't have a positive test. Um, and that w- wasn't just folks who got sick early on. Um, so it's definitely been like a real deterrent for people getting the care that they need. Mm. And Dr. Yeah. Aruna Subramanian, is that changing? Because we know how hard it was to get tests, especially early last year. Yeah, I mean... Unfortunately, for some of the research studies, you have to at least have had a positive test or show that you have IgG, um, that's serology, without having gotten vaccinated. But you're right that many people don't have that information and, and, and should still be able to access treatment if they need it. So um, I think, as, as Dr. Patel said, things have to change with our policy. And a lot of people who are affected were essential workers, and if if they can't work many months out, then you know their lives are really shattered by this. In our study, we had forty percent of people that told us at four months they were still having issues completing their work, and and eleven percent were having to actually take time off of work. And other studies have have also really reinforced this. So hmm. I think it's going to be so important especially in communities of color, but for everybody really to, to um, be given support for this and, and be given work accommodations and, and our restrictions and things like which. Yeah. Well, yeah. let me go to caller Lisa in Oakland now. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for waiting. Hi, of course. Thanks for having me. What would you like to share? Sure. I'm a team lead um, and founder of Patient-Led Research Collaborative, which is a group of long COVID patients who actually did the first research on long COVID out of the body politics support group. Ah. Um, I recently testified to Congress a few weeks ago. They just had a a hearing on long COVID that addressed a lot of the concerns shared today. Um, And one of the things I really wanted to talk about was Um, I got COVID last March of 2020, and like many of what we call first waivers, I was unable to be tested um, when I would have tested positive. And our research as patient-led research collaborative and also just being active in the long COVID community, it has shown that a lack of a positive test is leading to so many folks not being approved for disability benefits not having workplace accommodations, not being included in research studies, not having access to post-COVID clinics. It's really a, a huge problem in the community, and there's there's not really a reason for that. Um, our research has shown that people who test positive and those who test negative show no difference in symptom prevalence or trajectory. Um, 
there's no real reason to to exclude these patients from research or to exclude them from any type of benefits or accommodations. Um, well, Lisa, thank you for making those points and for the work that you do. And Dr. Gavita Patel, uh, I should actually remind our listeners, Dr. Patel is a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution and a primary care doctor in Washington, D.C. Dr. Runa Subramanian is an infectious disease specialist at Stanford. Paige Morrissey is living with long-haul COVID. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. As I listen to our our callers and the comments, um, Dr. Patel, are you seeing this registry potentially as also a place to begin the process of people getting any kind of help if they're out of work for extended periods of time or experience other major issues? Yeah, I think it could. You know, tech usually when we talk about um, kind of chronic disease registries, they tend to be exclusively in what I would say are kind of the traditional medical realm. However, everything that's been brought up, um, like ability to, you know, make disability claims, seek mental health treatment, I'm really concerned about basic access to health insurance, because there's been kind of this public health emergency, what happens when that's done. I think those are all incredible. And you can build in, again, you can kind of create any sort of uh, registry that takes into account, was this person, did they have a job loss? Can you ask? And, and I'll, I'll say that those of us in medicine and probably outside of medicine have heard of the Framingham Heart Study, where they followed kind of residents over decades in Framingham, Massachusetts. It's kind of considered a, a textbook in how we understand cardiac disease. I think we, it wouldn't be crazy to have something like that for COVID because there's so much we don't know, you know, a year and a half into this, why would we be so arrogant to kind of dismiss that 10, 20, 30 years from now, we might still be trying to tease out the effects. So yes, I mean, I do think that this could be a foundational building block, but we have to commit to it as a country. And I think other countries should also prioritize this. So we have a global understanding of this disease and its impact. Diseases, it's not one disease, right. many. Well, Elizabeth writes, is there any correlation between the severity of the initial illness and long-haul symptoms? Um, Dr. Subramanian? So some of the symptoms do correlate. So as I said, the, some of the pulmonary and cardiac symptoms you do see are more severe in people who are intubated or in the ICU for long periods of time. But many of the symptoms, especially the neurologic symptoms, do not seem to correlate. Uh, even people with mild infection often have symptoms after, um, you know, after many months. So there are certain symptoms that don't correlate. Hmm. Well, this listener is wondering, is it known yet whether the long haul condition can afflict people who had asymptomatic COVID? That's Doctor. a great question. We, we, I mean, we have very few of those patients in our studies, uh, but th there is some, you know, I've anecdotally heard people who, who, uh, later find out that they had they had COVID, and when they're uh, you know, when when they get their IgG check, it's positive. So um, there are a few patients like that, but they don't make up a large proportion of our. And just to continue with Elizabeth's question quickly, Elizabeth also asked: Is it likely that vaccinated infected people may experience long haul COVID, or that getting vaccinated? Uh, who get vaccinated may still be infected with very mild cases. Yeah, so far as I haven't seen anybody like that. Um, but as uh, Dr. Patel says, you know, we need more 
large numbers of patients and, and registries to, to really to know whether that's the case. So far, thankfully, I haven't seen patients like that. Well, Tina tweets, I was diagnosed with COVID in mid-November of 2020, had ongoing cough and lung problems, gastrointestinal issues, huge hair loss, fatigue, with time, inhalers and pacing. I'm finally feeling more like my old self. It's been a really hard, isolating journey. Paige Morrissey, I just want to leave a last thought with you uh, in in our last 20 seconds. Just hearing Tina say it's been isolating, um, I'm sure that's something that's pretty heartbreaking and and why in so many ways being surrounded by people who know and understand has been so important for you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there's there's so much healing in community um, and to feel like you're isolated, a passenger in your life, like you can that can be ameliorated to some point by finding folks who are going through something very similar to what you're going through. Well, Paige, it was so great for you to come on today. Also, Dr. Subramanian and Dr. Patel. This is Forum. I'm Nina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.